0: The Common Good Forum presents "Reinvigorating the American Dream" with Neera Tandon, president of the Center for American Progress.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So I'm I'm really honored to be here in a in a day-long panel, a day-long series of panels that is so focused on the country's gravest challenges. So and, the, and really. Given the earlier discussion, the globe's greatest challenges. So, I really want to talk about a series of interlocking issues that I think will grow in importance in the political debate in the next two years, and I think it'll grow in importance in the political debate on both the Republican and Democratic sides. So, it's a great opportunity to to discuss them, which is interlocking issues of stagnant wages, rising inequality, and lack of social mobility. Now, uh, I think that we often talk about this debate in, in somewhat polarizing terms. Particularly here in New York, you have heard a lot about kind of too many people at the top and too many people at the bottom. And uh, from the work that we do at the Center for American Progress, which is a progressive think tank in Washington that works across issues, we've really focused on the same picture but through a slightly different lens, which is Too many, too few people in the middle, the number of folks in the middle class in 1970 uh, defined by economists was 52% of Americans, today it's 40% of Americans. And that is an economic challenge, but it is also a sort of democratic challenge. Fewer and fewer people identify themselves as middle class. More people identify themselves as working class. Younger Americans, millennials think that term middle class won't describe them today and may never describe them. Uh, And I think that when we unpack this issue, it, it gives us a lot of information about why people are pessimistic today at a time where our actual national economic numbers are, are pretty good by historical averages. Hitting, getting to five and a half five percent 5% unemployment, our deficit numbers have fallen dramatically, our nation, still have a lot, fair amount of debt, but our deficit numbers have come down uh, in a kind of stupid way, but have come down regardless. So we've been trying to unpack why people are so anxious and how does it relate to this broad discussion uh, the American people have been having. And we found, we looked at actually, we wanted to look at how a family is doing, kind of prototypical family. So we looked at a prototypical family, two earners making $80,000 a year two children. And Cap, we did this analysis of how they were doing today versus how they were doing in 2000. And we found that that family, like most wage earners, have faced stagnant wages adjusted for inflation. So wages for them have really just matched inflation over the last decade and a half. This is a median wage family in the United States. However, costs have outstripped inflation. Some costs have come down. Technology costs have come down. Uh, Housing costs have not actually, at a national average, actually moved up dramatically. That's not true for the coast of course. But healthcare costs, education costs, retirement costs have all grown past inflation. And in fact, the single rising cost for middle class families today, the greatest, the fastest increase in costs is childcare costs. Something we don't really talk about that much in Washington. So if you look at that family, they actually have their wages have been outstripped by costs by $10,000. But because of tax policies, both by President Bush and President Obama, that's been mediated by $5,000. But if putting that all together, kind of the prototypical American family has $5,000 in less disposable income today because of stagnant wages and rising costs than they did in 2000. What does that mean for us, not just as a country, or what does that mean for us, not just as families, but for the country? That means there's less ability to purchase goods. People have less ability to, to drive demand and economy. The challenges we have, continue to face in the retail sector are shaped by issues like this, but I also think that it's a reason why we all have a stake in these in these issues. Um, we don't need to have a polarizing debate about economic inequality or state wage stagnation. That the country itself does better when the middle class is growing, not contracting. The economy grows. And we've seen this from data now from not just progressive think tanks, but the t- International Monetary Fund, uh, Standard & Poor's, others have done real analysis about how growing inequality hurts economic growth uh, in part because of demand but also you know truthfully you create human capital human capital when you have public investment in people that is driven by a larger middle class not a smaller middle class and uh, as I don't need to tell people in this room entrepreneurs our next generation of Steve Jobs, Jobs won't come just from the top. comes from everywhere. Steve Jobs. kind of came from a middle-class family. So did Bill Gates. So we want to ensure that everyone has opportunity, and that's important for economic growth, for the country. We'll get stronger GDP when we get that. So uh, we actually had a commission at cap. Uh, chaired by Larry Summers um, on inclusive prosperity that looked at the issue of middle classes across the world not just US Europe Japan Australia Canada globally because you know there is there has been a bit of a fatalism that has developed in the US and we talked about it a little bit today globalization and technology or na- international trends, that are creating stagnant wages and there's really nothing, you know, nothing we can do about it or there's very little that can be done. But what we found actually is that other countries, you know, face technology and globalization and yet they have had median wage growth. The United States, median wages have not really risen except for a period in the late 90s for the bottom 90 percent in four decades. So that is a, that is a big challenge, but other countries, that have, are even more uh, sort of subject to the will of globalization and technology have actually had median wage growth. Canada now is likely to have the wealthiest middle class in the world. For the first time, we have been outstripped. Uh, other countries have had 15 to 20% wage growth for their middle class families over the last decade. So it is possible to ensure that your families, your country is able to actually, you know, maneuver the trends of globalization and technology, but it does take policy to do it. So we, you know, we've put forward a whole range of ideas of how to encourage both innovation, competitiveness, but really focus on wages uh one idea that we've talked about a great deal and i think will be part of the debate going forward is ideas around profit sharing incentivizing companies to share profits us companies are are highly profitable today to share profits with their workers we think of that as an idea that's really shouldn't be conservative or or liberal should be one in which you give workers more of a stake in their company and we found there's uh numerous reports both by harvard and princeton that when companies do that, they actually get greater productivity, 17% on average. So it seems to us like this is a good idea that will actually encourage uh, income growth, not just for the top, but for the middle as well. But I do think over the long term, we have to ensure that there are things like access to college uh, are not just limited to to the top strata of society. And this is also another area in which having an international perspective is helpful because When you do, you realize that the United States stands out in making public higher education uh, so much of a private good. Uh, 85% of higher education in the United States is public. Only 15% is private. Uh, But it is really subject to how much you can afford, particularly in the last several decades where public higher education has become so expensive. So we've put forward an idea to ensure that it's more accessible to everyone, which is that for a public higher education it would be free to families uh, upfront, but then it, it, we, every student would be able to pay it back based on their income over their lifetime. So no one could basically no one would be able to no one would go uh, into debt, no one go bankrupt because of student debt costs and anyone, would know that they could feel assured if they became a social worker or a CEO that they'd be able to pay back college. So I think there there will hopefully be ideas on the right and on the left over the next two years about these challenges. One I think a very encouraging sign is that in the political discussions we've had so far, both Republican presidential candidates and Democratic presidential candidates are beginning to talk about uh, wage stagnation, the challenges of middle class families, but really the, family, the ability of families to uh, you know, do better than they have in the past. And I think uh, that hopefully in this debate we'll have real ideas on both sides to tackle these challenges. Because I do worry that if we move from, we've gone from 52% to 40% people as defined middle class. I do worry about the fabric of the country when we hit 36%, 35%, 34%, 32%. These trends in other countries have been arrested. Not in just Europe or where they have gigantic welfare states, but in countries that look and feel a lot like us, Australia, Canada, bigger, bigger, bigger role for government, but not so large in those countries. They are able to manage economic growth, having relatively high growth rates, and ensuring that the growth is more broadly shared uh, than it has been in the U.S. And so we hope that there are lessons, because otherwise our politics will respond in ways I believe that would be unhelpful to actually producing real solutions. And with that, thank you all very much. Should I take questions? Okay.
0: I think we can have some uh, oh, great. additional questions. As we sure. Start. Should everyone be able to go to college?
1: I think sh- any everyone should have the opportunity to go to college. I don't think you should be limited in your ability. Your the person who is able to go to college because of good grades. I do not think they should be limited because of their the income of their parents. So that's why I think we should create universal access to college. Uh, but, and, and there's been great data points by Professor Moretti of Harvard that shows that areas, communities that have more college graduates, incomes for everyone grows. So it's actually a way to, having more and more people go to college is actually a way to address inequality, but I don't think, we're not advocating a world where everyone goes to college and there's nothing for anyone else. We've put forward ideas on apprenticeships, other models to create a pipeline for manufacturing jobs, other high-skilled jobs that don't require college as well. But you know, I think it is a problem in the U.S. that because of costs, it has become an issue that is economically determined. Did you ever? A- well,
0: I, just, I just had a follow-up. I mean, uh, we actually are graduating something like in the mid-thirties.
1: Thirty-five percent.
0: Thirty-five percent college degrees. But-
1: so 35% of students go to college, 35% do not graduate from college, we have a much lower graduation rate so there isn't the same mismatch because it is like closer to 25 to 20. Um, it is a it is a it is an issue in moment of time whether that number of jobs required will grow as you saw probably in the last couple of ec- months of jobs data the, the good news is that it's take higher skilled jobs are being created it has been a definitely it's definitely been a problem with the recession that we've created a lot more low-income jobs than high-income jobs or high capital, uh, high human capital, or high skill jobs. But our, our view is that that will, I, we hope that's transitory, not a, an issue for that goes on forever, and so that's why ensuring greater access, and of course graduation rates, uh, making sure people who go graduate would be helpful to this. But I think one thing I would say is, over the long term, having more People with high skills will actually create, hopefully, more entrepreneurs, more other people who can create jobs as well.
0: Yeah, um, the example family you gave, what, the, the two, two, uh, two people earning 80000 mm-hmm.
1: That's a prototypical family in the US. Right. In, in, in 2000, um, Versus
0: 2014. 2014. Right. Of course, as we had emphasized, if that family had been making significantly more money, they would have seen uh, uh, not a stagnation in their income, but rather an increase in their income over that same 14-year period. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has been sort of quality in the, in the distribution of that income. Could you talk about what can be done in terms of policy to to get us a more level playing field here? Mm-hmm. I, I remember, Certainly, in my youth, we had very high taxes. Not that, that far. <laughs> yeah. We had very high taxes on the rich, and frankly, it, it got to the point where it just didn't make a whole lot of sense for people to increase their say, incomes and the rest, because they wouldn't get that much out of it. Oh, that, but that's but what, what did, we had done. We had a high, high growth. Speaking to the speaker. <laughs>
1: to get support though from uh
0: think about solutions and reflect on uh whether or not increasing taxes at the very high end uh, uh would make more
1: sense would make sense so uh, you know in my view uh uh we have a pre-distribution challenge in the country not just a redistribution challenge so companies if you take the last few years companies are highly profitable wages have been stagnant and business even though companies have record high profits business investment has been middling Um, so we we haven't faced we from a kind of historical average Profits are high, business investment is mid like middling, and wages are low. So, uh, what that tells us is that companies feel very little pressure to raise wages, even when they have plenty of cash to do it. Right. So, I think there's a lot of issues that circulate around that. First. Uh, you know there we we do have a system uh, that is d- different companies are financed differently in the United States than other countries for example the role of the bank sector and financing companies is hot bigger in other countries in our country we are equity financed CEOs them, themselves complain that quarterly profits and the rise of activist traders create heavy pressure to think quarter to quarter instead of year to year. The average tenure of a CEO in the United States today is four years, 20 years ago it was 10 years. So it's harder for those people to make longer term decisions. Why does this matter for wages? If you are only thinking quarter to quarter, it is hard to think of an employee as an investment versus a cost. If you think of an an employee always as a cost, it's hard, you, you you don't wanna think about how you're going to improve their wages over time, you're just thinking about how you're limiting their costs, which is limiting their wages. Against that backdrop, we do have globalization, we do have technology, a lot of jobs are being roboticized, so we live in a world in which that has come down a lot. Other countries, I'd say there are really two big factors in other countries where you see wages, product and I should say, really importantly, we, the united states has faced productivity gains around 30 percent between 2000 and 2015 that product those productivity gains are not being captured by the bottom 90 percent of workers they are being captured by the top percent of folks in the united states so what do other countries do that that, use, that or we don't really know what the golden answer is but we know other countries do have a variety of different factors so they have unionization rates 30 percent 35 percent helps lower income workers actually have bargaining power to actually get a wage increase. That's Bargaining power is very problematic in the United States. People don't have the ability to get wage gains. Their unions are also different than our unions. They do focus more on productivity gains, or some things we, we should do to reform unions in the United States around that. But you also see the financial sector is smaller in other countries, and you think the culture firms. Is kind of different. Like you just people in other firms, CEOs wouldn't. It re- takes you know wouldn't be paid so much money. They're much more used to passing on those gains to workers. And I think they they themselves will say CEOs. And we've had many conversations with Japanese, Canadian, German CEOs. And they would themselves will say, you know, just we would never if we were profitable. It's just a more normal thing to share wages. In Germany, obviously, they have. Workers on their boards, which help create that culture. So I think it is a there's institutional incentives But there's also cultural norms that kind of shift the angle a little bit to make sure Workers are benefiting when firms when they are more productive and workers are profitable and we have had greater productivity and greater profits even in the last few years of the recovery and particularly so in fact with no matching gains and that is why I think You hear Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush talking about stagnant social mobility. And my great hope is that we will actually talk about these both these challenges we face, but solutions on both sides to actually address them, because I do not think we will go through another twenty years and not have the rise of very right and very left groups in response to this if the governance if our government cannot actually address it. Thank Thank you.
0: For more information about the common good, please visit our website at www.thecommongoodusa.org.